From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, please visit lean.org. You may track a wide range of workplace metrics as part of your lean work, and yet, how do you gauge emotions? What role does this play in your managerial system? Hello, and welcome to WLAI, the podcast of the Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm your host, Tom Ehrenfeld, and today we talk with esteemed author Susan David, whose best-selling book, Emotional Agility, tackles these tough challenges. All right, I'm going to kick it off. Welcome, as you would say, Susan. Sawabona. Sawabona. I'm delighted to be with you today. Thank you. So one of the first questions I have to do has to deal with this notion of pragmatism. Your book seems to me a very pragmatic and practical way of approaching problems that might otherwise feel overwhelming and spark feelings of helplessness. And that is, by the way, I think a key element of lean or TPS, that it's oriented towards finding problems and then developing practical and pragmatic ways to approach them. Can you say a bit more about uh, the core of emotional agility and what role pragmatism plays in it? I'll define emotional agility briefly, and then I'll talk to, I think, you know, what I'm trying to achieve with these ideas. Emotional agility at its core is really our ability as people in organizations or as leaders to be healthy with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories. In other words, our internal world. And what does that health mean? It essentially is about the psychological skills that involve being both curious with what's going on internally with yourself, with how you're feeling or with how others are feeling. It's about being compassionate because we are all in our organizations and beyond doing the best we can with the resources that we've got available. And it's also about being courageous. Often when we are trying to do things in an organization or beyond, we need to move beyond default ways of being and that can evoke discomfort. And this is not discomfort for the sake of discomfort. It's discomfort that is specifically values aligned, values connected. So at its core, emotional agility is the ability to be with ourselves curiously, compassionately, and courageously so that we can move forward. And why the agility? Because when we are able to do this, we are not hooked by past stories or ways of being or systems and processes in the organization. We are able to be present to what is to the actual context that is in front of us and to assess what's going on and move forward. So why this element of pragmatism that I try to bring into my book and my work, it's because emotional skills have for so long been considered to be so-called intangibles or soft skills in business. And Yet we know that we can have the best strategy, the best plan, and yet how people feel about the change, about the process, impacts everything. The way we deal fundamentally with the inner world 
of people, ourselves and others, drives everything. It drives every aspect of how we love, how we live, how we parent, how we lead our organizations and how we implement change. I've always in my work with organizations been really interested in this fact that these skills are called soft skills and yet they are fundamental. They are the cornerstone of empathy, of change, of innovation, and of any kind of strategy. And what I really wanted to do in my work was to try to bring evidence and pragmatism to these skills so that people could actually understand them, use them, and feel like they could uh, take something that actually sometimes seems intangible, but actually recognize that there are practices and, and approaches that are evidence-based and that are extraordinarily helpful. Can you say more about practices that help productively tease out and make emotions, for instance, more explicit and fungible when it comes to behaviors that are useful within a business setting? Yeah, this is critically important. So I can talk about a number of strategies, uh, a number of practices, but the first one that I'll talk about is very much aligned with, I know you've had Amy Edmondson on your podcast before, and is very much aligned with her work on psychological safety. So this core idea, which is that when people feel safe to express an opinion or express a concern, that that safety is actually the underpinning then of what allows the organization to be effective because it's in that context that you're able to address errors or lapses in quality or uh, concerns about how products being rolled out, et cetera. Right. So as you can imagine, you can't have psychological safety without actually having an openness to all emotions. You don't get psychological safety in an organization if you say, we only want to hear from people who are positive. And of course, organizations don't say that explicitly, but typically what happens in organizations is we push aside when people are so-called negative, we push them aside and we only allow for optimistic viewpoints very often in the organization. So a very important part of allowing for any kind of psychological safety and, as it turns out, innovation and creativity and collaboration in an organization is the first part of what I describe in emotional agility. And it's what I call showing up to emotions. And fundamentally what it is about is trying to let go of this notion in organizations that there are good emotions and bad emotions that we've got to be positive and that we can't be negative. Because when you do this, when you only allow for so-called positive emotions, optimism, uh, joy, happiness, or let's just get on with it, is what some organizations, that's the cover for that language, then what are you doing? You are segmenting out concern, dissent, diversity of thought and opinion, and when you do that, you don't have an organization that can function effectively. So the first part of emotional agility is really about if you've got a leader in an organization, the leader really being open to the fact that there are not good and bad emotions, 
but rather that this is a context in which we welcome all emotions. And this, as it turns out, is the critical underpinning of, as I say, psychological safety, but also innovation and growth in organizations. And this is not just for the team. This is also for the leader. If a leader is going through a difficult situation, experiencing change, worried, concerned, often what we do is we castigate ourselves and we judge ourselves and we say, you know, I'm bored in my job, but at least I've got a job. We push aside these difficult emotions. And when we do this, we fail to actually develop the skills that allow us to deal with the situation as it is. Not as we wish it to be, but as it is. And these ideas first derive actually from the work of Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin wrote a lesser known book than The Origin of the Species called The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals. And what he describes is the idea that all emotions, every single emotion actually has a signaling function. It's helping us to communicate with ourselves, to understand ourselves better. And it's also helping us to communicate with others, helping us to understand other people's concerns or threats or values. And that when we push aside these so-called difficult emotions, that actually you lose the opportunity to then adapt and be agile. And of course, so many organizations are talking agility, but they're not talking about what are the psychological skills that are necessary for agility. So this is one of the first aspects of emotional agility from a pragmatic sense. I can talk more specifically in a more granular way, but it's really ending the struggle that we have with what emotions are good or bad, positive or negative, and rather just facing into emotions with gentle acceptance. It is what it is. What your staff member is feeling is what your staff member is feeling. It's not good or bad. It's not positive or negative. It is what it is. And only when we face into that uh, can we work with one of the greatest human paradoxes, which is that acceptance is the prerequisite to change. Right. Only when we accept what is in our process, in our situation, in our strategy, and what might not be going well, that we can then move forward to make effective change. Interesting. Well, one of the kind of principles of Lean Toyota Production System is that you must develop explicit systems of continuous improvement to have an organization of continuous improvement. And that it's decent people in a good system will outperform excellent people in a terrible system every single time. And this shift in emphasis has to do with a real explicit recognition of the need for defined standards of what you're looking for and observing the behaviors of people towards realizing these shared goals and identifying obstacles. So it's the context in which improvement happens. And it's a very different type of conversation than individual one-on-one manager employee conversations about, oh, you're good, you're bad, you can improve here or there. So is there a place for work standards or systems that establish purpose and measure performance 
in a non-judgmental way as a means of fomenting improved work performance? Well, yes. And I think that a lot of what currently exists, much of it outside of lean, doesn't necessarily tap into the human dimensions of how people bring themselves to the workplace effectively. And so an example of this is we all know that how people feel about their work is incredibly, extraordinarily important. We know that when people have values that are imposed upon them, it might be organizational values, for instance, that people actually become firstly resentful of those. These are not my values. This is what I'm being told are the values this month and they're different from the values last month. And we also know that that way of being doesn't work, that it actually leads to greater levels of resistance in the organization and to the human psychology of people feeling like I'm not acting this way because I'm being told to. So what becomes really important if you're really trying to systematize important ways of being emotionally agile for people in organizations is to recognize that human psychology and human emotions can and do at every turn impact the organization and impact lean type implementation. So for instance, we can start asking people who do we want to be as a team? Like, what are our values of how we want to come together? We don't have all the answers in this particular situation. And of course, there's a lot of complexity here. But there are some things that we can define. We can define in some way how it is we want to work together. What are our values? Is the value one of collaboration? What are the ways that we want to bring ourselves to this thing that we're facing? And we can then start systematizing. Of course, it's much more subjective because you're saying to people, do you feel that we are actually aligning in this way versus not? But you've got this group understanding, this shared value that we are moving towards and that we can assess ourselves against. And implementing these kinds of ways of being are just incredibly important. Again, another example of this is that often when there are large-scale implementations that are happening, leaders tend to become very focused on task. What is it that I'm trying to do here? Has this task been done? Has the task not been done? And we can become so focused on task that we actually completely lose sight of objective, that we completely lose sight of the fact that people might not be actually aligned with or behind the task any longer, and that it just isn't working. It's not going forward effectively. And so understanding a little bit like what is the task of the job that we are trying to do, but also what are some of the human objectives that we are trying to achieve here can be really important. So for instance, if you've got a team that is working together towards a particular implementation and the team is starting to say a very important way of us working together is that we want to grow as a team or we want to feel that we can authentically bring our concerns to 
this team in relation to the implementation, then what this does is it allows the leader, when they're finding themselves getting hooked on task, to step back and to say, am I managing things in a way that is consistent with objective? These kinds of questions can be systematized and we can ask them of people, but we can also assess them. And ultimately, what you are doing is you're incorporating the incredibly important components of emotion and thinking and human being as opposed to human doing into your lean implementation. By and large, lean ignores emotion. It operates on a model of one of our thought leaders says, or paraphrases, it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than think your way into a new way of acting. It's a social technical system with equal components. But essentially, you take a very pragmatic, to overuse the word, approach to performance gaps. Why is something occurring differently than what we consider the ideal state? And something we've explicitly defined as the best known way to make it happen. It never factors emotion as a potential root cause. It tends to be scientific in assessing what may be causing the deviations. So I'm just wrapping my brain around how to bring this element into that approach. Well, what I would suggest is I think there's actually an end there because if we look at ideal lean approaches, yeah. and then we look at when does it not work? Okay. You know, when do things not go according to plan? More frequently than we like to say. Correct. So when are things not going according to plan is typically human factors. They are typically human factors. They are typically the factors of emotion, of engagement, of values, of purpose, of feeling disengaged. It's all of these human factors. And what's really interesting with lean approaches is if you look even at the history and how lean approaches almost parallel what's happened very much in the study of psychology. Psychology, of course, started in many of its kind of original forms in the way that's most acknowledged with Freud. Yeah. All of these unconscious, subconscious processes, the id, the ego, etc. And psychology rebelled against Freud. Psychology basically rebelled by and large, not in every pocket of the world, but rebelled against Freud and essentially said, if you cannot measure it, it doesn't matter. If you cannot measure it, it doesn't exist. And so there was a whole rejection, essentially, of the things that you could not supposedly measure. And so what you start seeing in psychology is behaviorism. Behaviorism is, does the dog bark twice when you give him a bone? Okay, what is the thing that you can measure? And so for many decades in psychology, there was this focus on behaviorism. We are counting behaviors. We are measuring how many times a person checks their email. If we're trying to help someone to be healthier, we are measuring how many steps they take with their Apple Watch. And then there is a recognition that actually 
there are many times where someone might have a goal to walk 10,000 steps, but they come in from work and they're tired and they're stressed and they don't walk those steps. So psychology then starts to examine itself and say, huh, behaviorism is important, but it's actually not the complete picture. We also know that people's thinking plays into this. We know that if someone is depressed, we can tell them to get out of bed and get out of bed and get out of bed and measure their behavior. But ultimately, if their thinking is there's no point in even trying, why bother getting out of bed? The person's not going to get out of bed and they can try to force their way into it, but there still is this experience that they're having. And so what starts to happen in psychology is you start to integrate this behaviorist perspective with a cognitive perspective. And then what about emotions? What about how people feel? Because we know that people's feelings impact everything. And what I would suggest when it comes to lean or what I think is powerful when it comes to lean is the systematization. But I think one of the gaps that can often happen when things aren't going to plan is there actually needs to be an assessment of human factors and what those are. And that's where emotional agility and these emotional skills come in and are critical. Most systems of continuous improvement have a very strong element of metrics and measurement. And by and large, what's tracked are not emotional things. Everything from timing of tasks and distance between workplaces or all the things that have to do with the physical, even for non-physical work, aspects of completing a series of tasks, of identifying what are the so-called value-adding activities, and then breaking it down into an assessment of the most effective way to select and organize them to achieve a commonly shared goal. And it pretty much leaves out a measurement of an openness to the role of emotion and how somebody completes those tasks. So I, I don't know what question this leads up to. Sell me on the imperative of incorporating an emotional audit or reckoning into that type of approach. Well, let me give you an example. So firstly, I think that what we are describing here, which is you've got this system, you've got this approach, and this is the plan. And then we're saying when things don't work out, what is usually going on, it is likely the human factors. And so we know that emotions can and do impact on how people make decisions even. So I'll give you an example, and it's not a lean example, but it's the role of how emotions might impact people and how we might think about this. So imagine you are working for an organization and you are trying to get new clients. And so you've systematized your approach and you've got a sense of how you want to get these clients and how you do your pitch, how you talk to clients, and you know, your whole way of being with clients. But what you're not factoring in here is how the clients feel because we're being completely systematized here. So let me give you an example of how emotions can impact thinking. When we are as human beings in more 
we're in more neutral to negative moods. So when we're feeling a little bit more down, when we're feeling a little bit more stressed, without us even knowing, it impacts on our thinking style. So it leads to a thinking style that is more what is called deductive reasoning. It's that editing, proofing, what isn't adding up here, what part of the system isn't in place, what's not working effectively. When we are in a more neutral to negative mood, it leads to greater levels of effectiveness with that kind of deductive thinking. So this is all the thinking that you would do in an approach in which you were trying to contingency plan or you're editing a document and you're trying to find errors. You will find more errors when you are in that more neutral to negative mood. You go into your presentation and you are presenting why you feel the client needs your services, what the gaps are in their current workforce or their current way of being. And the client responds by pulling apart your presentation, by focusing on the graphs and what isn't adding up and the detail and so on. What have you done here? By you going into that presentation in that particular way, you've actually induced a mood in the client that is more deductive, analytical, critical, and so on. And you have gone against your objective, which is trying to get the client to buy in. The opposite way is that when we are in more positive moods, when we are more relaxed, more happy, as Every listener will have experienced when you are struggling with something and then you go for a walk or you're in the shower, suddenly ideas come to you. This is because when we are as human beings in a more relaxed, happy mood, it evokes a different kind of thinking. It evokes a kind of thinking that is much more brainstormy, creative, it'll be okay, innovative. If you are going into a presentation where what you want is initial buy-in from the client, you might actually not want to go in with a huge amount of data. You might want to go in with a shared sense of how can we work together? How can we help you? You actually might be wanting to induce a completely different mood in that client. And then once we've signed on the dotted line, we might then at that point want to think about how things might not work out and what we want to do. My point in this very long example here is that often what we do is we systematize things and we take out emotion. But in taking out emotion, what we are segmenting out is unrealistic. The fact is, is that our emotions impact us whether we know they are impacting us or not. And so acknowledging that emotions are impacting, acknowledging that when our plan, our implementation doesn't go forward effectively, it may be due to emotional factors, is I think far more sophisticated than just saying emotions don't matter, so let's not think about them. Because we know emotions matter. We just know they do. One thing that... I read into your book is that it's an approach, in my opinion, that has some parallels with what psychologists call CBT or DBT, kind of dialectic behavioral therapy, whose magic has to do with its focus on helping people who might get triggered into paths of depression or self-criticism by identifying in a very granular and specific way triggers, moments that 
very tangible things that trigger it. And of course, I may be completely misrepresenting what it is. I'm telling you my assessment of it. And that seems to me implicit or explicit in your work as well, to couple the actions that send one spiraling down a kind of unproductive emotional path that impacts on the choices one makes at work by taking a kind of grounded and practical approach to identifying where a kind of maladaptive response starts. It's a long question. I'm just putting it out there, and I, I also want to respect your time. Well, that's exactly right. You know, what I talk about in emotional agility is how human beings get hooked into ways of being that don't serve them. We get hooked into habits. These habits might be habits in our organization. They might be habits with our colleagues. And they can also be habits in our own minds and in our lives, in our relationships. We can have a value in our relationships of being connected and engaged and of having careers that are meaningful. And then we can get hooked into a way of being where we have an assumption that we're going to be laid off or that there's no point in even trying. And this way of getting hooked, emotional rigidity, actually stops us from bringing the best of ourselves forward. And so all organizations talk about the need to be agile. Let's all be agile. But you don't get agility by simply demanding agility. You don't get agility by simply writing it into a job description or developing some kind of strategy around agility. What is agility? Agility is about being able to be responsive to what is. And in order to be agile, when an organization is saying we want to innovate, the intimate relationship that innovation has, this is the dialectic that you spoke of, that it's impossible to open yourself up fully to innovation unless you open yourself up fully to potential failure, because not all innovation is going to be effective. It's impossible to open yourself up to collaboration if you don't truly open yourself up to the dialectic, which is potential conflict, that people aren't always going to agree. Right. We can say that we want our customers and our staff members to be engaged and connected and to be relational. But when people experience a lot of stress and a lot of information coming at them, they actually cognitively tend to become more transactional. What you have here is this impossibility of demanding that people are agile without recognizing that their psychology can and does impact on how they come to the workplace. And so I think the dialectic, when we think about even lean, is this dialectic of an end. Yes, there are these systems and processes that are incredibly important and that are well-worn and sophisticated and critical to the success of what people are trying to do. The end is the dialectic. The end is the recognition that mm -hmm. when things are not working, that often what is happening is it's about how people are feeling about what is going on. 
And so if we can build in an understanding of firstly, not trying to set aside difficult emotions, helping to label emotions effectively, what is it that you're feeling right now, helping to establish a sense of shared goals and shared values that are embedded and bound up by how people feel, and also starting to establish ways of understanding and measuring that, then what you are doing is you are coming to the task that you are facing with an expansion of being rather than a constriction of being. And it's that expansion that ultimately is going to allow you to be more effective. I know that in lean, actually the erring is constriction. The erring is reducing down. But I think that you can expand into the emotional world and also recognize that we can systematize and we can understand this, not in a way that feels completely checklisty. I mean, I, I remember going to a meeting a couple of years ago where this very large organization of 180,000 people had incredibly high turnover. And so one of the executives said, you know, we've got 30%, 40% turnover in this organization. And of course we are a huge organization and that's a huge cost. And so we want to stop people from leaving the organization. We want to understand what's going on for them. What the organization did is it mandated that once every six months, every leader have an authentic conversation. Now you can see the paradox in that. Like, how do you mandate an authentic conversation? Mandating authenticity. So not all of this can be reduced to checklist. But I think not incorporating emotions is a little bit like saying to people, come to work today, but don't come with your hands or don't come with your eyes or don't come with your ears. People come with their emotions, whether we want them to come with their emotions or not. And so incorporating an understanding and developing greater levels of how do we systematize which we can how do we pragmatize which we can we have evidence and research on this is extraordinarily helpful to organizations that are trying to achieve change and power and growth and innovation and equity and justice and sustainability and all the things that organizations are grappling with right now We've had a long talk and I want to respect your time. I will end by reminding people, Susan David is the author of the book, Emotional Agility. Susan, is there anything else people want to contact you or know about your work? Any uh, resources or links they should know about? So I think Emotional Agility is a good first place. I've got a quiz on my website that might be helpful to people. About 120,000 people have taken it to date and it gives people a report on their own levels of emotional agility. And that's at susandavid.com forward slash learn. My TED talk is called The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. And it really talks about some of these core ideas psychologically, but also touches on how they impact and are important in organizational contexts. So I think those are three great places to start for people who are interested in some of these ideas. Okay, fabulous. I will say that the TED Talk is wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much. Heartfelt thanks to our guest, Susan David, whose book is titled Emotional Agility and whose website is susandavid, one word, dot com. 
Thanks also to the WLEI team of Emma Ripp and Lori Moniz for their work. Please share any comments and questions with us at podcast at lean.org. Finally, thank you for spending this time with us.